Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So what we're going to do today is we're going to um, talk about the life of Joseph. Even though it's titled Benjamin's Walk, you'll figure that out here in a second. We'll tie it all together. Um, but we're going to talk about the life of Joseph. Now, I'm going to spend a significant portion of time in the future, several weeks, going through the life of Joseph because there's just so much goodness in his life and what we can learn from, from the biblical account of his story. If you want to go back and kind of catch up on it later, in, or later this coming week, it's in Genesis chapter 37 through chapters 50. You may look at that and go, 13 chapters? Oh my goodness. You'll start reading and you'll realize you're going to blow through it really quick because the story is just amazing. But I'm going to, um, most of you probably have heard his story, but I'm just going to do a quick recap, uh, just kind of the, some of the highlights, um, get you up to the point where we're going to be talking about um, what's going on with Joseph's brother, Benjamin, one of his 12 brothers, Benjamin. So Joseph is <clears throat> the favorite son of Jacob. If you've ever heard of people, preachers say, you know, we, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the Jacob that they're referring to. He has 12 sons, and those 12 sons actually get become, <clears throat> excuse me, they actually become the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how those are divided up later. So, but Joseph is having dreams as a very young man, and he's having dreams of all of his family, multiple dreams and different uh, analogies and different metaphors in his dreams, but it's all his family coming and kneeling down before him. So he does whatever, you know, any good young person would do is he starts telling them, hey, I'm having dreams of you kneeling down in front of me, and they get all upset with them, right? So all this, this sibling rivalry starts happening, and they start kind of going back and forth, and his brothers finally decide, I've had enough of this, I'm going to find a way to kill him. And uh, one of them steps in and says, hey, let's don't kill him. Blood will be on our hands. Let's just jump in the pit and let him die on his own. So then we didn't really kill him. And then the other one's like, well, yeah, go ahead and do that, but I'll come and get him out later. And then they see, you know, while they're in the middle of this scheme, they see this uh, band of slave traders come through town. And they say, bingo, we're not going to kill him. We're not going to wait for him to die. We're going to sell him off into slavery. So they sell him literally off into slavery. They take his coat, which is a coat of many colors. You guys are probably familiar with that. Dip it in blood, take it back to Jacob, who's his father. And uh, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. Like I know if you have multiple kids, you're not supposed to have a favorite. Uh, Jacob does not care about that rule at all in the least. He has made it known that Joseph is his favorite, bought him his own little special jacket that says this is my favorite son. Well, they take that jacket from him before they sell Joseph off into into slavery. They dip it in blood, take it back to Joseph and go, hey, found this jacket. There's blood on it. No Joseph. He ain't here. I think an animal ate him. And they convince Jacob that um, Joseph is dead. Joseph is sold into, into the slave trade world. He is taken down to Egypt and he is sold to um, an Egyptian man named Potiphar. Potiphar quickly realizes that Joseph has skill and is trustworthy and makes him head over everything in his house. Nothing is off limits to him except one thing, which is his wife. But his wife, suddenly in the midst of all this kind of scenario, watching Joseph run around and work, she starts getting the hots for Joseph. Joseph, um, this is the Matt International version, so you can go back and read kind of the, kind of the, the real thing and, you know, later. But she gets the hots for him and says, I want you to come and sleep with me. He says no. She repeatedly goes after him several different times. He says, I don't want to do this. And uh, he actually runs out of the house one day. Well, in the, all the commotion, she grabs his jacket and says, hey, um, tells everybody else in the, ha- in the house, 
<clears throat> that servant right there, Joseph, he tried to rape me. So Potiphar obviously believes his wife and not the servant that he's purchased out of the slave trade, sends him off to prison. He's there for a number of years. He interprets some dreams. He winds up getting called before Pharaoh and interprets his dreams. And when Pharaoh realizes, oh my goodness, these, these dreams are real, and he's really interpreting what's going on here, which is seven years of abundance is coming, followed by seven years of famine for the nation of Egypt. <laughs> Joseph is promoted, taken out of jail, and promoted to the number two ruler in all of Egypt. He is charged by Pharaoh to lead the effort to gather up all of, for seven years, gather up all the grain, the livestock, the meat, whatever it is, and store it in a way where he can actually bleed it back to the people over the seven years of famine. And he actually has so much food that they sell it to the, to the neighboring countries around them. He eventually is reunited with his family. So the, the part of that, little, of that little synopsis right there that we're going to enter, as we're going to talk about, that I'm going to call Benjamin's Walk, and there's a little diagram on your, on your notes there, happens in between the point where Joseph is promoted to the second-in-command in, um, in Egypt and when he's reunited, reunited with his family. And that window is this, <clears throat> all of our focus of our scripture, and what we're talking about today happens, is which I'm referring to as Benjamin's Walk. So one thing that I noticed right away that was away from Benjamin and this story was um, the Joseph's age when all this happened. So the first line of your notes there, Joseph was 17 years old, 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. <clears throat> and the next line, he was 30 years old when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery and 30 when he was pulled out of prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Next line in your notes, there was a 13-year span between Joseph being sold and when he became the second in command of Egypt. I don't know about you, but I read that portion and thought, um, what took you so long to get from here to here? Why in the world wait 13? years and put him through all this stuff before he, get, he goes from the point of being sold when he don't know what's going on. He doesn't know where he's going. He has no clue he's going to wind up working for Potiphar. He's going to wind up in prison. He has no clue that he's going to wind up the number two in command interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. He has no idea he's going to do that at 17. He doesn't really know that at 29 either. A year before he's pulled out, he's got a 13-year window of what the heck is going on here? If that were me, I would have asked that question multiple times every day for the 13 years going through that window. What that tells me is this. Well, let me back up here. God, your next line in your notes, God created time. He's outside of it. God created time, so he operates outside of time. God created time, so he operates outside of time. One way you'll hear this referred to in apologetics, which is basically giving answers, Christian answers for Scripture and the Bible and our, and our point of view, not our point of view, but the point of truth for the world who has questions, is God is referred to as the uncaused causer. Everything has a, is, is the result of him creating something He's outside of his creation. He was not created, so he's uncaused. 
and he caused everything else to be, to, to be in existence. God will take, okay, so his number one goal is that his will is fulfilled because his will is perfect. Time is of no consequence to God. His only will is that his perfect will is completed. Even, we even see this in Jesus. The night before he's crucified, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays to God the Father and says, Let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. God's will will be done. So when I look at this 13-year gap in Joseph's life between 17 and 30, it tells me this. Next line on your notes. God will take as long as he deems necessary to accomplish his purpose in the lives of his children. God will take as long as he deems necessary to accomplish his purpose in the lives of his children. So here Joseph is, 30 years old, gathering all of the, the abundance of, of grain and all of the harvest, all of the meat, all of the things. He's, he's storing this during the seven year, years of abundance. And then just as he predicted, the famine hits. The famine, Joseph predicted, the next line of your notes, is impacting countries outside of Egypt, including Canaan, C-A-N-A-A-N, including Canaan, and the surrounding areas. Today we would call these areas modern day Israel or the Middle East. <clears throat> so, right where Jacob and his now, he thinks only 11 sons that are left alive are living is in Canaan. He hears, and the famine's impacting them as well, they're running out of food. He hears that there is food, provisions in Egypt, and so he says, I'm going to send my son's up there to get us some food. So he packs up a bunch of money, he packs up a bunch of travel supplies, and he sends them up, all of his sons, to Egypt except one. Jacob tells his son, the next line of your notes, his sons to go to Egypt and buy food, but doesn't allow Benjamin to go. He doesn't allow Benjamin to go. So, the ten brothers that are not Joseph and Benjamin, go to Egypt to buy food. When they, when they arrive, they wind up requesting to buy food directly from Joseph, not knowing that it's him. Since Joseph is organizing all of the distribution of food, they travel and they wind up meeting their brother, but not realizing it's their brother. And this is the, this is the, the place where we're going to pick up the next page of your notes, page or so of, of your notes, the scripture about what happens from this point forward. Genesis 42, verses 3 through 13. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? he demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. 
Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, and he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. He said to them, You are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. We are all brothers, members of the same family. We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there were actually 12 of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now, Benjamin. And one of our other brothers, Joseph, who they don't know they're talking to, is no longer with us. Skip down to verse 17. So Joseph, this is, uh, I think this might be a little bit, little bit of get back on the brother's end. Joseph put them all in prison for three days. <laughs> on the third day, Joseph said to them, I'm a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. <laughs> the rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families, but you must bring <laughs> your youngest brother back to me. This will prove you are telling the truth and you will not die. To this they agreed. And out of the group, they don't say why, but Joseph picks Simeon to stay in jail. I don't know if Simeon like, had one of those like pesky older little brother relationships with Joseph. Like he was always ribbing him or like nugging him on the head or like <laughs> pantsing him in front of his other brothers or something. But he, for some reason, Joseph decided, Simeon, you're staying here, homie. And then everybody else can go. Jump down to verse 25. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home, so the brothers loaded their donkeys with the grain and headed for home. So what the brothers don't know is that they've been, they think they've purchased food, they've got their food, but when they arrive home, they open up all their bags and the money that they were supposed to use to buy the food is now back in their bag. All of them are now panicked. This has been not a really good meeting with the, the king or the ruler over all the food in, in Egypt. This has been a wildly unsuccessful up until this point. And so these nine brothers go back home and they realize what happened and they go to their father, Jacob, and say, <laughs> tell him the whole story. And now, now they're... Um, they're very worried about what's going to happen, not only to them, but they have. A, they need to take Benjamin back. They tell that, and, and Simeon's back in prison. So they tell Jacob, we need to tell, take Benjamin back with us to prove we weren't lying. Jacob says, uh-uh, you ain't taking him. He's the favorite I got left, and if anything happens to him, if you read through all the scriptures, he says, my heart will fail me. I'm just going to die if something happens to him. How the rest of those brothers would be feeling at this point, right? This guy, you're going to die over him? I mean, you got others of us out here. I mean, we would cry too, but you got 10 more of us? Come on. But he is so wound up. His heart is so wound up with affection, had been for Joseph, who he thinks is dead, and now for Benjamin, who he refuses to let go. He doesn't even care that his other son, Simeon, is sitting in the slammer back in Egypt. He's sitting there, not knowing what's happening, and guess what they do? Jacob doesn't let him go back. They go through all the food before they have this conversation again. We don't know how long that is. We don't know if it's months. We don't know if it's a full year. We don't know if it's nine months, six months, six months, a couple of different seasons. But they go through all the food and they need to go back again. Jacob was so bent on not sending Benjamin, he's like, let Simeon sit there. 
go through all the food until they need more. Oh man, you got to go back and get more food. And so he tells them, go back and get more food. Yes, we will. But we can't do that without bringing Benjamin. Reuben steps up, one of the older brothers, and says, I guarantee you nothing's going to happen to this boy, and I will put down collateral to guarantee it. And the collateral he put down was his two sons. If anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill my two boys. That's how confident I am that nothing's going to happen to him. Jacob still says no. Until all the food, every last drop is gone. And now Judah steps forward and says, please let us take him. We're going to look after him. And then finally, Jacob, with no other option, needing food or his family's going to starve to death, fine, just take him. And so they all go back to Egypt to go buy food. It's kind of been a not a really good meeting. They've been accused of being spies. You know, they can't really be trusted. But then the story takes yet another even more unexpected turn as the brothers head back to go buy food from Joseph. Let's go to Genesis 44, verses 1 through 11. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. So here they are. They've come back. They've shown Benjamin to not realizing it's Joseph. They just think he's the leader, the ruler, the king. They show, hey, here he is. They let Simeon out of jail, and they're now going to go and let, he's going to honor his word and let them buy food and go home all together now as 11 brothers. When his brothers were ready to leave, Genesis 44, verses 1 through 11, Joseph gave these special instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry, and again, put each man's money back in his sack. Then, take my personal silver cup at the top of the younger the youngest brother's sack was Benjamin, along with the money for his grain. Let me pause right here. This is, was an unbelievably strange request for the palace manager from Joseph because everyone in Egypt knew what that silver cup, or in some translations they call it a scepter, a silver scepter meant. Whoever had that silver cup or silver scepter, they honestly believed that person had a connection with the gods that gave them the power to foretell the future. It was something they looked at with very high regard. Whoever had that was to them was the man because they could predict things that did not happen yet and that would come to pass. So for him to give that cup or that scepter and tell his palace guard manager, hey man, put that in his sack, the, the manager had to stop and go, wait, what? You're giving him the scepter? You're giving him the cup? Put it in his bag. All right. Puts it in the bag. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, Chase after them and stop them. When you catch up to them, ask them, Why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Which of you has stolen my master's silver cup? Which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. When the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers replied. 
We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? Then they write a check that they really can't, they don't want to cash. If you find his cup with any of any one of us, let that man die. All the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. That's fair, the man replied. But only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly took out their sacks from their backs of the donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brother's sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Oh my goodness. This is much... You ever heard the term stranger than fiction? The truth is stranger than fiction? Truth, stranger than fiction. What in the world is going on here? They get back into the palace. The brothers, knowing that Benjamin has to go home for their father... Reuben, my two kids are on the line. Judah, I promised him nothing was going to happen to them. The rest of them, he's going to die and he don't care about us because, Benjamin, or, you know, because Benjamin's going to be stuck here in, in Egypt as a slave. They rush in to see Joseph and they begin begging him, please, we don't know what happened. He really didn't do this. Did you really do this? No, he didn't really do this. Look at him. He didn't really do this. Please let him go. And they're begging for all kinds of things. One of them volunteers to stay as a slave, and they're begging for the life of Benjamin. They're upset, afraid, terrified, and unsure of what's going on, and they're begging the king for understanding. Genesis 45, 1 through 12. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were, too many, there were many people in the room, and so he said to his attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he, then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. He said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. The famine that has ravaged the land for the last two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and, pres and preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. Come down immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, your household and your animals will starve. Then Joseph added, Look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin. 
that I am really Joseph. I don't know about you, but just kind of emotionally following that story, I'm a little worn out. Like there's like back and forth and prison and people who are free and, you know, it's like setting up and conspiracies and who did this and why and all that. And it's just, it's an amazing story, an amazing story. And as I read that story and got into it, I asked the question, why in the world is Joseph so bent on seeing Benjamin? Why is he so adamant about seeing Benjamin? He saw the rest of his brothers. They said the youngest one was back there. He didn't have any you know, real reason to think they were lying at that moment. They were desperate for food. Why is he so focused on seeing Benjamin? Well, let's take a look into that. The next line on your notes, Jacob's children were born from four different women. Bum, bum, bum. You ever seen Sister Wives? Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of like the Old Testament version of that right now. All the drama and stuff that's going on. Okay, so his first wife, Leah, with uh, Jacob with his first wife, Leah, had six sons. Six. His second wife, Rachel, had two sons with Jacob. Leah's maidservant had two sons with Jacob. And then Rachel's maidservant also had two sons with Jacob. Now, maybe you guys had a couple crazy moments at your Thanksgiving dinner and you look at your family and go, it's the touch dysfunctional. There is no way it's as dysfunctional as the Thanksgiving at this house would have been. Because you can automatically see the politics going on. This, this person don't like this person. This kid made this kid mad and he stole his bike or something. And then this mom is mad at this mom. And we're not going to feed you the same food as everybody else. And you're not going to get as much. Can you see kind of the dynamic that's at play here with all these different boys, all these different mothers, all this different dynamic. And it's kind of a free-for-all. Whatever dysfunction you had is nothing compared to the dysfunction that is likely going on in this home. All right? So the backbiting, the posturing, the quarreling, everything is going on in this house. But there's one thing to consider. Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved the most, and her children were Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel was the wife Jacob loved the most, and her children were Joseph and Benjamin. All of the other brothers were Joseph's half-brothers. Benjamin was the only one, same blood, same full relation. He's the only full-blood brother. As I began to look through some of this, I feel that the Lord kind of showed me a couple things I want to kind of leave here and deposit with you before we wrap up today. First and foremost, why in the world was Joseph so keen on sending, or finding Benjamin? The king, number one on your notes, the king is looking for those who are his. The king is looking for those who are his. If I can translate that Old Testament passage to right now and the principle that we're kind of getting into the next line in your notes says this, when we became believers in Christ, we were no longer strangers, but we were adopted into 
the family of God. That's why when we say people got saved, they got born again. They are now born of the Spirit. They are now children of God. <clears throat> Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that He could adopt us as His very own children. And because we are His children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit of His Son into our hearts. One more time. The Spirit of His Son into our hearts prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you the heir, his heir. This means that the same Holy Spirit that descended on Christ at his baptism, that raised him from the dead, that fell on, the, on those who were in the upper room in the book of Acts, resides in every single believer in Christ. Just stop right there and think about that. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same Spirit that was poured out on what we refer to as a day of Pentecost and, and, and Acts in the upper room, the same Spirit that descended upon Him when He was baptized is alive and living in you if you are a believer in Christ. Yeah. I don't know about you, but that shifts the scale a little bit. You're kind of seeing how you measure up. I'm kind of seeing how I measure up with certain things that we're dealing with in life. But the scale is tipped when God puts his finger on it because his spirit lives in you and it's tipped in his favor. That is inside of you. <clears throat> One of the things we have to remember about, the, about these stories from Scripture is that the biblical accounts are not just made-up stories or fictional analogies. They are real stories of real people. So when we're talking about Joseph and Benjamin and all of the things that we just described that he went through, let's not forget Benjamin is a human being. Imagine the thoughts that are running through his head as they think they're scot-free. He went back. The grain is in their bags. They have their money, the silver cup and the scepter. He doesn't know it's there. And they, they leave and think, "Woo, man, this was a crazy scenario, but we dodged a bullet on this one. And they get outside the city. And all of a sudden they hear the rumbling of the horses coming from behind them. And they're like, man, somebody's in trouble. Who are they after? And they're like, let's get out the way so they can, you know, move out the way so they can slide right on through. So they're looking and waiting. Hey, man, what, what's going on? Wait a minute. They're, they're kind of stopping here. Wait, what? What? No, we didn't steal nothing. And then imagine what Benjamin's like. He's the last one at the line. Because why? They unpacked the bags from oldest to youngest. Here's Benjamin. Oh, yeah, I'll open my bag. I don't have the scepter. You imagine what Reuben's doing to him? Bro, I put up my two kids as collateral for me, and you took this thing? I just said, we're going to kill you, man. You're going to be slaves? He picks up the cup. Um, I, I don't know how this guy here. You took it. Uh, and I didn't. Bro, it's in your bag. I know, but 
How'd that get there? Imagine the thoughts running through his head as they go back to the place they thought they had just been freed from and dodged a bullet from. Imagine the emotions that he has to have walking all the way back to the palace. If it were me, I would be full of fear, confusion, a little bit of anger, a little bit of righteous indignation. I didn't do this, but I'm copping the blame for it. What in the world is going on? When we read these scriptures, we have to remember they're real people. And the thoughts that are running through their minds are the same ones that would have probably been running through our minds if we were in the same scenario. The king put Benjamin, the one that's like him, in a position he could not orchestrate, or control. It's the next sign of your notes. The king put Benjamin, the one like him, in a position he could not orchestrate or control. He made sure every eye was on Benjamin before he revealed his plan. Why? Number two. The king uses the one he has the relationship with to showcase his power through. The king uses the one he has the relationship with to showcase his power through. Why did Joseph put all of his brothers through all of this? On the outside looking in, I would ask, why did he put them through all of this craziness? He chose this method to reveal who he was to them. He chose this method to reveal who he was to them. Nina asked earlier there in worship, how many of you are waiting for a promise? And I'll take that one step further. Are you in a scenario at the moment, maybe it's a promise you're waiting for, but are you in a scenario at this moment that you find that you cannot orchestrate or control anything that happens from this point forward? Is there something that you're dealing with that you go, I have no option, no other option but to trust God. I am in a scenario with somebody relationally, with some situation I'm in at work, or fill in the blank, however it applies to you. I'm in some situation that I cannot orchestrate or control. I can tell you from being in that scenario myself multiple times throughout my life that it is helpless. And here's the part that really cooked my noodle in this story when I, when I thought about those two things. Number three, there's a big possibility that the king, that the king is the one <coughs> And those last three words are set you up. There is a big possibility that the king is the one that set you up. I am not going to sit here and pretend pretend today to know why Joseph chose to use the tactics that he did 
to reveal himself the way through Benjamin. I have no idea why he did it. Scripture doesn't tell us why he did that. But I'm also very confident that no one understands fully the tactics of the king. No one understands why he orchestrates the way he does. No one understands why he crushes you the way he does. No one understands why he loves you the way he does. No one understands why he processes you to get you to the place that he wants you like <coughs> he does. No one understands the tactics of the king until he reveals himself. And you can look back and go, oh my gosh, he was orchestrating it all along. God didn't make a mistake putting you in the situation that you're in. He didn't whiff on orchestrating your life's course. He made you the parent of your children on purpose. He made you the children of your parents on purpose. He made you the coworker or business partner of those employees or those clients on purpose. He did not make the mistake. It very well may be that if you have obediently followed the Lord to this point and you are truly His, that He's the one who set you up. When I found my own self in that position, I went, God, get me out of this spot. Please help me. I'm suffering here. I'm hurting here. I'm, I'm confused here. Please get me out of this spot. I want relief from it, not understanding that he's the one who put me in it. He had no, no, he has no, um, he, he has no um, care about time because he's outside of it. He cares about accomplishing his will and his purpose in your life to accomplish his will. He's the star, not us. We've talked about that before. He's the one who orchestrated you where you are if you were following him to get to this point. And if you're in a spot where you were disobedient, the spot that you're in, he still knows where you're at. And he has enough grace and creativity to weave a beautiful tapestry to get you out of it and back onto the spot he wants you to be in. So why is the message titled, Benjamin Walk? There is a distance between the time Benjamin went from, what, there's a scepter in my bag, all the way back to the time the king revealed his plan. There is a distance that has to be crossed in between those two events. I don't know about you, but I am not a journey person. Not the band. I can deal with the band, right? But people are like, enjoy the journey, man. Enjoy the ride. I'm like, forget you, bro. Let's get there. Don't you just want to drive across the country and see all the spots? No, I want to land in New York. I want to go to sleep, take a nap, watch a movie, something, and land in New York and not get stuck in Dulles on a connecting flight, right? Like, I just want to get there. I'm not a journey person by nature. 
I had to realize that God's greatest pleasures are forming us into what he wants us to be along the way. There is a distance between the point where you realize I am helpless and to the point where God reveals his plan. And in that span of time, whether it's a day, a week, a month, a year, or whatever, seven years, before God says plant a church in your living room, whatever the length of time is, you're going to have to endure with trusting that the king is orchestrating your steps if you are obeying his direction. He may have put you in this situation you're in so that every, so every eye could be on you. He did this to the children of Israel when they left Egypt after all this story happened. They went out into the wilderness and the Bible says they actually wandered and the Lord who was in the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night literally led them in an incoherent direction. Why did he do that? He wanted them to look stupid. What? Yes, because if you read the scripture, all the people from Egypt looked and said, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. We can go and attack them and bring them back here as slaves. God led them on a route to make them look like idiots and to provoke the enemy to attack them and then opens up the Red Sea they walk through and God's ultimate purpose is fulfilled when he destroys the enemy and frees his people. There's no regard for your reputation. Well, I'm the smart guy, God. Like, I did good in school, and I don't make these kind of mistakes. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to look like an idiot? Maybe. Why? He may want to put every eyeball around you, on you, so that he can showcase his power through you because you're the one that he has the relationship with. Why would he do that? For the ultimate glory of him. Think Joseph had any hand in orchestrating where he was? We could easily call this message Joseph's walk instead of Benjamin's walk. Benjamin's walk was much shorter than the 13-year span it took from Joseph to get from the point of being done wrong until the revelation of God's plan. He might have put you in this situation to draw eyes on you so he could do something great through you. He may have put you in this position to crush you and refine you and drive out of you the things he doesn't want to be there anymore. He may have put you there because you're running too fast. It's not quite time for you to be where it is. He may be pushing you because you're running too slow. He's going to orchestrate something and by his divine appointment. It's going to get you at the right place at the right time. We don't know what it is because we don't understand the tactics of the king. Here's what I do know. A very encouraging scripture. 1 Peter 4, 12-13. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through. He didn't say may go through. He says you are going through. 
as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, excuse me, instead be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. And so you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the world. Whatever spot you're in, if you feel like Benjamin, I don't know what happened here, God. I'm just out here doing what you said. You said to come back over here. I came back over here. You said to go. I left. From that position to the point of God revealing himself, there's a distance and a span of time. And in that span of time, we have to trust, continue to obey, and believe that he is orchestrating things for our good and, more importantly, his glory. I'm here to tell you as one of the people who has walked that path, which I'll call Benjamin's walk several times, that it could be the king is the one who set you up. He did it because you are his, and he wants to use you to showcase his power, his goodness, his grace, his forgiveness to the world around you. That preservation that Joseph had for his family was actually preserving a nation. God put Joseph in a position to save all of Egypt, but also to save his family. He has no ability to see past that point. What he doesn't know is by saving all of his family and all of the brothers are alive, that that will actually turn into what we know now as the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. You will not know the ripple effect of your obedience or of what God is doing through your life. You may not ever see it completely. Because the ripple effects of obedience last generations to generations. And that is another reason I love submitting to the Almighty God.